Hi, my name is Richard Staines. I'm here with Rene Aguia Lucanda, CEO of Kalidatus, who's going to talk to us about the development of the company and its rare disease drug, Tarpeo. Rene, before we talk in detail about Kalidatus, please could you tell us a bit about yourself and your journey to becoming CEO of Kalidatus, please? Sure. So I've been a CEO of the company for about six years now. But prior to doing that, I actually was on the investment side. So I was investing in life sciences businesses all across Europe for a variety of funds. So I spent about 12 years actually in that kind of capacity. And prior to those 12 years, I spent another 12 years actually on the investment banking side, again, providing capital, M&A advice, et cetera, for healthcare and technology businesses. So I really came at this from a kind of slightly different perspective than many others, really kind of having looked and seen, you know, all the trials and tribulations that all of these variety of life science businesses kind of go through. So I really had an amazingly great perspective as I had been had the opportunity to look at, you know, such a broad range of variety of startup businesses, you know, businesses that come a bit further. You know, so for 12 years, I really kind of, you know, educated myself, one could say, in terms of all of the, you know, what companies did right, you know, what were the biggest issues, what were the challenges. So that really was my kind of path to the CEO position. Thanks very much. And How has the company evolved since you became CEO? Yeah, so when I arrived, we were about probably 10 people. It was a small private company, obviously based in Stockholm. And so really with the challenge of trying to raise a significant amount of capital to start a phase three program, kind of a trial that was going to take the company, obviously, towards approval of a drug. So that's really kind of what we started up with. And then obviously we have built, we built a lot of different capabilities. We took the company public in 2018 on the Swedish exchange and raised a significant amount of capital enough to really kind of drive this phase three study, which is a global trial. And actually finally, I just really finished a couple of months ago in March, we read out the final data from that phase three trial. And then obviously, so we had to complement with a lot of different resources and skill bases, because as you know, life sciences is... It's just kind of a, uh, it's a mosaic of different expertise that you have to really manage. We then actually also decided very early on strategically to commercialize any products that we developed and got approved uh, on our own in the U.S. and partner ex-U.S. So that really meant that we ended up starting to build a U.S. presence fairly early, already kind of in late 2019. So actually in 2020, we listed the company in the U.S., as we knew that if we were successful, we really would have a lot of compliance, regulatory issues. We'd have a full footprint in the U.S. And so really being kind of as close as possible to kind of really being and becoming a U.S. company, I thought was very important for the overall success of the business. So that's really kind of where we started out. And today, obviously, we're well over 200 people. As I said, we are public both in Europe and in the U.S., And we have this kind of full footprint of market access, medical affairs, commercial, uh, legal, et cetera, in the U.S. So it's been an amazing journey, really. Very, very fun, very challenging. But certainly, I think it's really exciting to see how the company has kind of grown into becoming this kind of commercial biopharma company from really starting out as a, you know, kind of one product in a very kind of small private setting in Sweden. And just so I've got an idea, when did you actually take start as the company? So 
This has been exactly. It's quite a fast <laughs> process, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So I did join in in 2017. So that was really kind of the first time that I joined the company. And as I said, so really we spent the first kind of time really just you know getting the resources in place that we needed in order to take the company public in in Sweden. So we recruited quite a lot of staff and then really worked with a variety of banks to really prepare for going public. Because again, obviously, you do require quite a lot of regulatory compliance, risk management, a lot of different things, obviously, that company needs in order to qualify to be a kind of listed company. And that's really what we did then in kind of, I would say, middle of 2018. So we raised, you know, a significant amount, of, about $75 million is what we raised in our kind of original IPO, which was then sufficient for us to start this very large global phase three trial where we had, you know, we really were in, oh, I think, 15 countries around the world and, you know, almost 150 sites. So that in itself, obviously, even if we don't do everything ourselves, it obviously requires quite a lot of oversight and expertise to really kind of run these type of trials, you know, completely on our own. So again, that was really kind of the first part of this challenge that we had to get right. And the approval of Tarpeo by the FDA was a significant step for Kalidis. So how did this impact the business? So really, I mean, we, we also we had prepared for this. As I said, we started quite early. So we had brought on board some expertise, both in terms of commercial, market access, medical affairs. But obviously, all of these resources were brought on and, and trained and integrated and all the kind of regulatory work we had to do and, and kind of, you know, manufacturing, you know, logistics, supply kind of work we had to do. You really do all of this work, obviously, without really knowing whether you will actually have a product on the market or not. So once we actually got the approval, that was really, I think, it's a fantastic event for the company. And it really uh, you know, meant that we could, if you like, press the button on all of these preparations and all the resources and all the things that we had prepared for. So at that point in time, we were able to really onboard, for example, the sales force. So we had all of these kind of salespeople kind of sitting there kind of saying, you know, we'd like to join. We want to, you know, join Kalitas and market this product. But obviously, as a smaller company, we can't really carry that cost for six months or 12 months without actually kind of having a product. So we do what most companies do in this industry, namely, you know, we really kind of onboard them as soon as we get the approval. There's a well-prepared kind of way where we can onboard these people, train them, get them certified and get them into the field as soon as possible. It really is kind of, we're talking about weeks really in order to kind of get them out into the field. So that obviously, you know, completely changed the profile of the company. Now today we have a pretty equal balance in terms of number of people in the U.S. versus Europe. And obviously, in terms of a lot of those specialty skills of market access and marketing, we obviously then also added more resources into those kind of fields. Now that we had an approved product, obviously, we needed to start talking to payers, insurance companies, start kind of preparing marketing campaigns. So that was obviously something else that also was a trigger. The approval was a trigger for some of that spend on that investment in order to actually be in a position to have a successful launch of that kind of approved product. Thanks. And how important is this decision for patients, the FDI decision? I mean, I would say that you can't really underestimate how important it is. I mean, I think it's a kind of a rare disease that everyone's been aware of for, you know, since the 60s, I think it was actually originally kind of defined and actually during this entire time, unfortunately, I think it is, I know, has been an issue very much in the renal space is that, 
these patients really have not had anything that's ever really been designed to address their disease. And this is something where patients are often, I mean, they're diagnosed quite early on. They're diagnosed in their 20s or 30s. And really all they can look forward to is kind of going to see their nephrologist every three or four months and consistently seeing kind of their kidney function decline over time. And we do know, obviously, that about 50% or more of these patients do continue to kind of progress, irrespective of all of these kind of off-label and other things that physicians are desperately trying to use in order to see if they can have any impact. But, you know, we do know that they don't really have that much impact. They do continue to progress towards dialysis and transplantation. And I mean, having to go into dialysis in your 40s, you're in the middle of life, you have small kids, you work. I mean, it's it's really terrible. And obviously also you have a much, much shorter life expectancy, obviously on dialysis compared to, you know, non-dialysis. So I think for patients, this is really good news. Uh, I think it's something that's specifically designed for this disease. You know, the company's been working on this disease for 15 years. And so I think it's a real triumph to be able to bring something to patients where this is really designed specifically to target this disease and not only just kind of the disease itself, but really kind of try to stop the disease at the very beginning. So it can be disease modifying and actually hopefully then bring them this ability to actually keep them out of dialysis. That's clearly kind of the goal. It's not just to kind of ease their symptoms or, you know, make them feel a bit better. Uh, It's clearly to try to address this underlying reasons for this disease and keep them out of dialysis. And just to move on from that point, um, the EGFR data announced in March of this year, that was another key milestone for colleagues. Can you talk about the significance of these data and its impact on nephrologists and uh, patients with IGA nephropathy going forward? Sure. I mean, this was really kind of the you know, key component of this entire program, as I said, that's really been going on for such a long time. This data really showed, you know, we treated patients for about nine months. We had read out data previously that showed that when we treat patients, it does have a very, very beneficial impact on their kidney function, does stabilize their kidney function. So those treated patients do not incur the same loss of kidney function as those patients who were on placebo. So we knew really that we were having something that as long as the patients were on this treatment, that we were actually doing something extremely valuable in terms of the underlying disease. This, however, when we actually took patients off drug and we then actually just observed them for 15 months, which is actually quite brave to do in a in kind of a drug development context to really kind of say, you know, can we really show that this treatment really is creating some sustainable and durable benefits on the kind of underlying disease? So I think this phase three data readout, the vast majority, I think, of, of people probably assumed that we were not going to be successful. But actually, this data was stunning. I must say it was extremely good, very clear, very clean, highly statistically significant. P-value was 0.0001. I mean, that's like a that really shows you it's a very well kind of carried out trial and obviously with very you know significant differences between placebo and treatment. And it really did show that this nine-month treatment really had this kind of durability. That treatment benefit that was created over those nine months actually was sustained for those 15 months off treatment. So this really is what kind of gives us clear basis for saying this is disease modifying. This will actually 
have this ability of significantly delaying the time to dialysis, even with this one kind of nine month treatment. And obviously the idea is obviously to be able to keep patients on, on the drug in terms of doing intermittent treatments, etc. and therefore keeping them out of dialysis. So I think that the data was, you know, it was very strong. It was very consistent over the entire study population. So again, we didn't see this thing where, you know, some patients benefited, some patients didn't benefit. So it was very kind of clear over the entire study population, which again is something that you want to see, obviously, from a clinical trial. So we were extremely happy with the data when we read it out. And I do think that this is truly kind of from a data you know, and a proof perspective, really what will set the the ability to kind of bring this out. The difference here is obviously that, you know, in a funny way, it'll be people like your listeners who will know about this data far more than nephrologists will. So it's actually, in a funny way, the information about the data is obviously was presented by the company as a top-line data readout. But so far, it actually has not been kind of really gotten to the nephrologist community. The way that you can get this to nephrologists is really through conferences, publications, abstracts. You know, nephrologists don't sit around and listen to thousands of companies, you know, kind of quarterly reports. So obviously, from that perspective, this data really hasn't reached the nephrology community at all at this point. So the very first time that we'll be able to present this when uh, the largest European renal conference takes place here in Europe in mid-June. And that really will be when we have an opportunity to present more of this phase three data. And really the audience there, you know, are the nephrologists. So this will actually be the very first time that nephrologists will be able to see this data, take part of it, and it'll start kind of slowly at least have some potential impact. And so I think that's kind of it. There is a quite a long lag between the company being able to present the data and the data actually kind of making its way into the treating kind of physicians and then kind of to patients, because we can't really market on this until we have a, an approval from the FDA. So the plan is to file in July timeframe. And then there's a six to 10 month review period, depending on which review standard the FDA applies. And it's only when we have that kind of updated label and the new approval that we actually can commercialize this to nephrologists and to patients. So there is actually quite a significant time lag between us knowing what the data is and knowing what it'll do and the point where we can kind of broadly go out and our sales force can go out and actually bring this to all the nephrologists kind of in the U.S. market. Okay, so basically you're saying when it gets to full approval, you're expecting the market to expand a bit. Absolutely, because obviously this will be an, a label that will be based on what we can do for the underlying kidney function, not just a symptom. And also obviously the data has been very clear in terms of it's been very consistent over the entire study population. So we would expect obviously an approval in the full population with this kind of label that really talks about what it can do for the underlying kidney function, not just for kind of symptoms related to a disease. Now that you've, um, the company's crossed this line from a, a biotech to a, a pharma company with something on the market, what factors affect when and how Caledesis gets paid from prescriptions as these patients start to take the uh, drug? So this is actually a, a fairly complex system. And I think, first of all, obviously, we are based in Europe and Europe fundamentally has a one-payer system. Uh, that is not the case in the U.S. The U.S. is not a one-payer system. So it's a very different system in the U.S. versus what we're used to over here in Europe. 
So there is a bit of a gap in terms of actually explaining this to our investors over here. And it's a bit of a challenge that I think, you know, that work will never really be done. We all think we'll have to continue to explain and educate on that for quite a long time. But simplistically, one could say, obviously, because you have in the US, you have lots and lots and lots of different insurance companies that provide kind of healthcare coverage to the individuals. In the US, when you have a product like this, it's called a specialty product. And actually, that means that when the physician writes a prescription, the physician can't really decide themselves which patient actually gets this drug necessarily. They have to go through a whole process with the insurance company to get the insurance company to agree that this patient should have this drug and that they're willing to pay for it. So this is something that's true for all specialty products in the U.S., not just our product. But that process in itself can be quite lengthy. So there are three, I say, four different buckets in the U.S. in general. So obviously there are patients who have commercial insurance. Their kind of plans tend to pay full price for any kind of medication that they have approved or that they're covering. You then have Medicaid for those that don't have the ability to pay as much. And Medicare, that's really for kind of the elderly population. So in this particular disease, about 70% or so of those patients that are afflicted by this, we estimate have commercial insurance. So they really are the ones that will pay kind of the full price, if you want to call that, in terms of this medication. And then it's split pretty evenly between Medicaid and Medicare, but it's a much smaller group. In the U.S., the fourth bucket really is obviously there are people in the U.S. who actually have no insurance coverage. And the pharma industry has generally an approach, and obviously most companies are ethical that way, that if there is a patient that has been approved from a physician, but actually doesn't have the ability to pay the bill, then actually pharma companies will usually provide that drug to these patients who are in need but do not have any kind of insurance or any ability to pay. So basically from writing a prescription, you have several of these steps in terms of there may be patients that the physician wants to give the drug to that the insurance company disagrees with. So those prescriptions will never turn into revenue for us. And obviously also sometimes the physicians will write for patients that are quite far outside of the label. And so that will be quite difficult per se. And then you have this process where actually will take, on general, I would say that, you know, it probably takes up to a month, sometimes even longer for the patient to actually get the drug after the prescription's been written. So there is a lag in this, and this it really goes into this process where it's a back and forth between patient, the actual office who prescribed it, and the actual kind of insurance plan, which sometimes can take a long time, and particularly if the office, the physician's office, may not have a lot of resources to deal with this pretty complex administrative process. So it is a learning curve. It is something where physicians are learning, where I think insurance companies, this is a new product. They haven't really covered it before. So all of these create a bit of friction into the system. But obviously, all of these things kind of improve over time and will only get better and better and better. But there are these delays and frictions in the system. And I would say even in Europe, obviously, it's never the case that one prescription always results in the fact that it's been taken. We all know that sometimes we don't pick up our prescriptions. We don't finish what we're supposed to do. Something's happened in between the time we got the prescription and we actually got the drug. We're no longer sick, et cetera, et cetera. So there are things, obviously, where this will never be a one-on-one -on -one kind of conversion. 
We need a little bit of data. We've always said that if when we have about 18 months of data, we hope that that's going to be sufficient for us to start drawing some more general conclusions about how, you know, what we can say on average in these cases. And so that's really what we're hoping to do when we're reporting kind of our Q2 results later this year. Okay, great. And the final question really is, what's been the biggest challenge for you in leading Kaleidosis? And do you have any advice for listeners on how you overcame this? Building a business really that has almost kind of equal balance in kind of Sweden and the US, really creating a culture, a culture that everybody can kind of feel that they belong to, that they believe in, that it's clear to them, that it's all transparent, we're all aligned, we're all kind of operating as one company with one goal. And, and I think creating that kind of company culture, which everyone can, you know, really understand, belong to, and I think it's incredibly important something that I've spent a huge amount of time on trying to kind of get to. And I think that that is an, it's an incredibly valuable asset because obviously the assets that we really have in life sciences are people. And so I think that kind of a challenge is something that I think, you know, starting things early, getting the right people, getting the people to kind of buy into this cultural concept can sometimes be more important, more effective, more efficient than necessarily getting someone who's highly qualified but actually doesn't really want to play, you know, in the playground with the other kids. So I do think actually that creating that culture is, is critical. And I think that's a job that's never done. It's always ongoing. But I think realizing that and working hard at that and really seeing that as a key strategic imperative rather than as a kind of afterthought, I think is actually the advice that I would give to anyone who's trying to build kind of an international business. The other part, I think, is exactly what we've covered. I think kind of being based in Europe, commercializing in the U.S. is a challenge. I think it's complicated, it's difficult to explain because it's not something innately that everybody sees all the time in lots and lots of other companies. And so I think that takes that challenge of explaining not just our product, but a whole country's healthcare system to kind of a whole other level of, of communication challenge. So, so I do think that, you know, that is something, again, that will never be done with that task. And I think you just have to kind of try to be as consistent as possible and actually also not be kind of drawn to try and give too much information too early on the basis of information that's not valid or not kind of reliable. So I think that we have to have a little bit of patience and wait until we have enough kind of data that we can start drawing some real, you know, useful information from it. And I think that clearly is always a challenge you know, patience is not everybody's. I mean, I don't think I'm particularly patient either, but I think that kind of, I think, is a bit of a challenge that, again, I think we're just going to have to continue to work through and get better and better at. Great stuff. Thanks ever so much for talking to us. Really appreciate it. And uh, good luck with the next stage in uh, Kaleidosis. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. <laughs>